So we finished the last message. Uh, we finished the message last week talking about the faith of this man, Joseph. We read in Hebrews 11.22 that by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. <clears throat> if Joseph didn't have a faith that looked beyond himself, he would have died in the pit or in slavery or in prison. Some of us have this kind of short-sighted faith, a faith that doesn't look beyond ourselves and we die in the pit or in slavery or in prison. I want to turn to a couple passages of Scripture. Uh, the first one in the book of Psalms, and we'll look at Psalm number 146. Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs, he returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans perish. Can you see how Joseph's plans didn't perish on his death? He said, take my bones out of here. But when you put your plans in man, even if that man is yourself, the moment, you're die, the moment you die, your plans are done. And so your faith needs to look out beyond your own limited scope. The other scripture I want to look at very briefly is in Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 7. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 7. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 7. When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of the unjust perishes. And this is not who we want to be. We need to have a faith that looks well beyond our own very limited view of life, particularly beyond our own lives to, and I think, the kingdom of God that's going to continue past the end of our lives. What are you doing right now in faith that is going to extend past the end of your life? I'm going to complete the overview of Genesis today. We're going to touch on a lot of things that um, deserve a lot more time. But I want to plant the seeds in our mind of what's happening in the story of Joseph. If we pick up the story of Joseph and just read it, there's a lot there. But when we see how it fits in to the book of Genesis and then we look at the story of Joseph, so much more begins to blossom out of that story. And so we're going to um, jog through Genesis. And you have to forgive me. There's several scriptures. So I thought, do you know what? I'm going to put them on the overhead so that you guys don't have to flip through them um, so quickly. 
Um, oh, look at that, Sunday school. Um, and so hopefully, hopefully by doing this, we can zing through Genesis. Sorry, I'll get there, folks. I'm, uh, I'm not a technology guy. So the title of today's message is The Genesis of God's Plan for Salvation. In the first part of the book of Genesis, we have the creation and the organization of the universe. So God, with his speech, out of nothing, creates the universe. But it's not, it's not really ready yet. And you can see that in the mind of God, he's preparing for some event. So something's, something's in the plan of God that we haven't run into yet. So... In chapter 1, verse 1, we have, in the beginning, God. So we know where the story starts. We know who the main character is. We also have, in John chapter 1, verse 1, the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we see that, Jesus Christ himself, right there at the very beginning, is speaking the universe into existence and beginning to organize it toward a goal. So we know who the main character of the story is. On many levels, one of the main issues in Genesis from beginning to end is this. Can we trust God's speech? Can we trust God's speech. And it is exactly here that each of us will experience some sort of an attack. And we see in this verse that when God spoke, it happened exactly as he spoke. Then in chapter 1, in verses 26 and 27, it says that man is created in the image of God. What does this mean? Well, it has meant a lot of things to a lot of different people over the years. And so we'll look. I, I'm, I'm not going to get into exactly what it means, but I do want to talk about how important that phrase is. The universe is vast and beautiful. <clears throat> you can see on the picture, we have beautiful mountains, beautiful sky. And um, if we were on the end of that dock, um, we would just be enjoying the view and we'd be praising God and saying, how wonderful is this universe that you have created so beautiful. And we get, we get an appreciation um, of the glory of God. And um, that's why I wanted to um, read for you or with you Psalm 19 and the first six verses. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech 
and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And we rejoice in that, don't we? And yet that's only the universe. That's not created in the image of God, not at all. Man is created in the very image of God, and yet we don't rejoice in man the way we ought to. We see tremendous beauty and power and glory when we see a a picture like this. And we look at some people and we think, oh man, what a waste of skin. We do, don't we? You're as guilty of it as I am. I know you are. Or at least you have been in the past. And yet, it is that person that is created in the very image of God. This is only creation. This can be wiped out and done away with and remade, not man. Once a person is conceived, they are going to live in one form or another forever. And it's a burden. When, I remember when my children were born, each one of them, I was thinking, this person is going to live forever. Because he is created in the image of God. And we need to remember that when we're looking at this story in Genesis. Then we also get in Genesis, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, the meaning of human life and death. And morality is defined by God. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What determines morality? What God says as a reflection of who he is. That determines morality. And God said, you can eat of every tree, but not this one. And that determined what was right or wrong. Again, we have this issue. Can we trust God's speech. Let's compare a couple verses. Because Eve didn't trust God's speech. Satan came along and he said to Eve, has God indeed said? And we'll look at what that all meant later on. Look at these two scriptures. One of them almost at the very beginning of the Bible. The other one almost at the very end. And you can see how wonderfully they match up because God's word is true. So when the woman, Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, look at the other scripture. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, look how the red letters line up. The tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh that which is good for my body, that it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. It looks good. It pleases me. And 
desirable to make one wise, and the pride of life. Look how smart I can be. She took and she ate. Not only that, she said, here, husband, you take and eat too, because that's what sin does. Celebrate this with me. And we find out that it is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And sin is just like that, isn't it? It Seems to fall into one of those categories. And she fell for the trap. Has God indeed said that you shouldn't eat? Did God, did God say that you would die? Look what is denied by Satan here. The commands of God are denied and the judgment of God. Is that not today's society? God didn't say, nothing bad's going to happen. Nobody has the right to judge me. I can do what I want. I'm autonomous. I make my own decisions. God didn't say, and even if he did, I'm not listening. It's the lie of the devil in chapter 3. Did God indeed say you should do this and, or not do that? Did God say something bad was going to happen if you did that? No, 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 Eve. Look, it's actually good. It's actually good. Look at it. It's good for food. It's pleasant to the eyes. And it'll make you, tr- it'll make you wise. You'll become like a God. You'll be completely self-sustaining. No more being under God's rule. Did God indeed say? So what do we learn? Eve took the fruit, she ate, and just like sin does, she gave it to who she knew. And we learn in chapter 3, verse 19, that disobedience to God's word leads to death. You know, when I look at the story of Cain and Abel, I think, well, here's the, here's the genesis of sin. So maybe in that first generation, they'll tell a few white lies. And maybe in the second generation, he'll borrow something that doesn't belong to him and not give it back. But it won't be a very big thing. And maybe in the third generation, they'll, they'll gossip. And maybe in the fourth generation, and it gets a little worse and a little worse, and maybe 10 generations down the road, maybe somebody would steal, and maybe 20 generations down the road, somebody would actually commit murder. What do we find out? How powerful is sin in the lives of humans? The very first generation born on earth. Cain looks at Abel and says, you're everything I want to be, therefore I'm going to kill you. The very first generation. How powerful is sin? And we think we have some kind of control over this incredible virus that's invaded all of human nature? No. Only God can deal with our sin and cover our shame. Look at what God says in chapter 315. I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's speaking to the serpent that deceived Eve, and between your seed and her seed, notice that seed is capitalized, that's really important, 
This seed shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then a little bit later on in verse 21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. We have the gospel right there. They sinned. God came with the gospel. I'm going to send a seed of the woman. He's going to destroy the works of the devil, but not without suffering a tremendous amount first. And then God said, I'm going to cover not just, I'm not just going to take care of your sin. I'm covering your shame as well. I'm covering your shame as well. I'm going to take two of these animals that I have created, put them to death, make skins, and give you them as tunics, as a constant reminder that you are covered by the work of God through death. We see God taking care of sin and shame. What a beautiful picture. God says it over and over again. You can't do it. It's impossible for you, but look what I'm going to do. Wonderful, wonderful gift that God has given to us. Then we see God's dealings with human beings in chapter, beginning in chapter 5 through chapter 9. And we find out that the virus of sin infects everyone. And judgment is coming. And you can look up chapter 6, verse 7 for that. When we read chapter 5, we get to the end of the verse. It says, so-and-so lived and had children, and they died. So-and-so lived and had children, and he died. So-and-so lived and had children, and he died. So-and-so lived and had children, and he died. And he died. And he died. And then he mentions Enoch. And Enoch walked with God, and he didn't die. Enoch walked with God, and he didn't die. And then Enoch's son died. And the next person died. What do we learn? Sin infects everyone. And judgment is coming. It is the word of God. What can man possibly do? Chapter 6, verse 9. Walk with God. It's your only hope. Do you want to live? Do you want to live, God says? Look at the story I'm telling. Do you want to live? Walk with me. Walk with me. Then you'll live. God plucks the Hebrews out of the nations, beginning in chapter 10. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention. Do you know who else lived when God sent judgment? Noah. Why? Noah walked with God. Did he live in the same way that Enoch lived? No. God had different ways of bringing judgment. With Enoch, he said, Enoch, come home. You're coming home with me. With Noah, he said, Noah, you're going to go through something tremendously difficult. Walk with me, and I'm going to deliver you. How do we deal with everything? How do we deal with a death? How do we deal with everything that's going on on earth? Walk with God. That's God's story from the beginning. Walk with me. Listen to my speech and live. Walk with me in the garden. 
Walk with me in your life. Walk with me through the flood and you will live. Then God plucks the Hebrews. Hebrews, by the way, just means kind of a homeless one, a wanderer, a tent dweller. And God looks at these Hebrews and he plucks them out of all of the nations. And we see that beginning in verse, uh, in chapter 10. So here's this story of Babylon. And it's, when you're reading through Genesis, sometimes you think, why is that story there? It's just kind of plunked right in the middle there. And it's, it's a little bit out of order, really, because we've learned that there's been other um, nations and they had their own languages. We learned that earlier on. But then we have this story of Babylon just kind of plunked in there. And I'll, I'll tell you why in a moment. But we learn something about the foundations of the city of Babylon in chapter 11, verse 4. The men gather together and they say this, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. That's the shaky foundation on which Babylon is built. The men get together and say, let us make a name for ourselves. By the way, Babylon is in a, a land called Ur. You remember where Abram gets called out of? Ur. Very close. About 100 kilometers um, south of where Babylon is. So the peoples are dispersed and Abraham comes about. And it's really difficult to give, get a timeline as to how far Abraham comes after the Tower of Babel. But it looks to me that it's between about 40 and 150 years. And so here are these people to gather together and say, let, let us make a name for ourselves. And then they're dispersed. And then God calls to Abram out of this area. And in chapter 12, verse 2, look at what he says. I will make your name great. I will make your name great. You're not going to make a name for yourself. I will make your name great. And then God promises the seed, capital S, through Abraham's line. Abraham was keenly aware that God had promised a seed that was going to be the answer for sin. And then God comes to him and says, Abraham, by the way, this answer for sin is going to come through you. I can't imagine how excited Abraham was going to be. It's going to come through me? Yes, Abraham. The answer to all of man's sin is going to come through you. He must have been thrilled. And we see that promise in chapter 12, verse 3. In chapter 17 through 19, God says it again. God, I, uh, Abraham, I have a plan. I have a plan to deal with all of the sin of mankind and it's going to come through your line. And then Abraham has a son Ishmael by his own maneuverings and the maneuverings of his wife. And God says, no, that's not, that's not where the answer is coming. The answer is coming through your own son by Sarah, Isaac. And so Abraham's excited. He has Isaac, this son. And God says, do you know what? The answer to all of human sin is going to come through Isaac. And he's excited. And then God says, Abraham, take Isaac and kill him. And we think, how can this possibly be? This was not just Abraham saying, I, I'm, this is going to hurt. I love my son. I have to do what God says, but I love my son. Abraham saying, how is sin going to be dealt with if Isaac's not around? 
God said he was going to deal with sin through Isaac. And now I have to kill him? What's going on? Well, we know what's going on. We read it earlier. Turn back to Hebrews. Actually, I have it. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Why was he able to do this? Because he concluded that God was able to raise Isaac up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Do you see God's story here? What a type of Christ this is. And the ram comes along as a replacement, and the ram gets caught in the thorns. Remember someone else in history that has a crown of thorns that is going to become the replacement sacrifice? I seem to recall a story about that later on after Genesis. Do you see God's great plan? And Abraham's going, God, well, I'll do what you say because I know you can raise Isaac from the dead because, by the way, Isaac was only a lad. He hadn't, didn't have any children yet. So the only way the Messiah, the seed, was going to come is if, so, if God raised him from the dead. So Abraham said, yep, I'll do what you say. And in his heart he knew because God can raise Isaac from the dead. It is because the resurrection of the dead is the hope for mankind. The story of God. Through and through. Every time we look at the scripture, all the way through Genesis we see the story of God working its way out and he picks a particular group of wanderers and he said, I'm going to bring salvation through this group of wanderers. And these group of wanderers, these Hebrews, they contain the promised seed because the seed in chapter 26 verse 4 is promised through Isaac. Then Isaac has two sons. Well, you can see right away that if Abraham is going to have descendants like the sand of the sea, and there's only one son after one son after one son, there's only ever going to be one. Well, Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And God says, Jacob is the one. It's the younger. It's the younger I have picked, not the older. And that's a theme that runs all the way through Genesis. It's the younger I have picked, not the older. Then Jacob becomes Israel. How does Jacob become Israel? He wrestles with God. He wrestles with God. Becomes Israel. And now in chapter 32 and 35, Israel has 12 sons. Now we begin to see a nation coming from Abraham. He has 12 sons. Now, I want you to picture this wonderful Christian home. Four mothers, 13 children. One of the mothers is unloved. Two of them are servants. I feel sorry for Jacob. Very often when I look at the story of Jacob, I think, you, Turkey, manipulating, getting your fingers in every situation you can possibly get your fingers in. I feel sorry for Jacob. Why? Jacob's father never really loved him. Remember the story? Who did Jacob's father love? Esau. And he made it plain. 
There was Jacob living in a house where his father didn't love him. And so what do we see in the life of Jacob over and over and over again? A driving craving for love. And he sees Rachel and he says, oh, that, if I'd had that, then I would have love. And that doesn't work out. I feel sorry for Jacob. And it's in this family, a father who had a father that didn't love him, a man who took four wives, didn't love the first one, and therefore the children from that first wife weren't very valuable, and two servants, and he didn't really care for those kids as I, very much either, but he had one light wife whom he loved, and this wife has a child, two really, but the first one is Joseph, and it's in this situation that Joseph grows up. Can you imagine? Joseph grows up, and this is, this is like modern day. You should put this in a modern day children's book. Joseph grows up with one dad and four moms. Eleven half-brothers and a half-sister who's been raped. And Jacob believes that the seed, the answer for all of man's sin is going to come through Joseph. How do we know? He gives him a coat of many colors. You're the one, Joseph. You're the one. That's not God's plan. That's not God's plan at all. God has other plans for Joseph. And that's what we'll get into next week. So I am hope with this really quick overview, you see the, the wonderful plan of God. What is it? To somehow bring the seed, the answer to sin and shame to all mankind. And he's working out his plan. And it's in this plan we get this story of Joseph. And that's the story we're going to be looking at. And I think it's so important that we see this wonderful overview of God's answer to sin. And for those of you that read Gen the all 50 chapters of Genesis, um, I'm hoping you're, you're reflecting on some of these things and saying now, aha, I see what God was doing. I see what God was doing. The people there didn't. Not a chance. You look at what Judah did. What a turkey. I would like to slap Judah. God had a plan, and God had a plan for Joseph. And we've seen the home that Joseph grew up in. You think Joseph had issues? Oh, Joseph had issues. We'll start with Joseph's issues uh, next week. Let's pray.